Welcome to episode 7 of The Plan. We are out of Genesis. Don't worry, we're not going to spend six episodes on each book. Um, there's just a lot that happens in Genesis, and now we're moving into the book of Exodus. And what we're doing in this study, if you haven't been with us before, is we're studying the story of the entire Bible. We started in Genesis 1, and we're going to go all the way through the New Testament and look at how the Bible is one story following one plot, and our lives are part of that story. We talked about how you know the story of David and Goliath is not my story. I don't actually appear in that story anywhere, but I do am part of the story of God and humanity that involves David and Goliath and and all of these other people that we encounter in the Bible. And what we've talked about is the fact that the story of the Bible, what the plot that is driving all of these stories, is the same. It's that God has a plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in His presence. In every part of the Bible, that's what God is working on. So we talked about how in Genesis 1, he creates the world, and he fills it with humanity, and he tells them to rule over it on his behalf, and on day 7, he comes to live with them and to fill it with his presence. And then he focuses on, and then focuses on one location, the Garden of Eden, where God's presence is especially there. And Adam and Eve, he places them in the garden, and he gives them the task of tending to that garden, and they mess it up. And this starts a pattern of human beings really not being great at our part of the plan. And so they go into exile, their family goes into exile, and God decides that he's going out of, because humanity is not great at this, he's going to focus on one family in one place. And so he chose, chooses Abraham and Sarah and their family, and he decides, I'm going to focus on them, and I'm going to give them this land. And through making the plan work for one family in one place, we will bless the whole world. And so we talked about Abraham and how he was eh, okay at it, uh, at keeping up his end, but God kept working with him. And then Jack walked you through the next several generations of the family, and they were, yeah, but God was faithful to them and kept working with them. And now we have a big jump in time because uh, we left the story with Jacob and his sons in Egypt because of a famine. And then when we pick it up in Exodus, that family has grown over about 400 years into a nation. They've been very, they have uh, been very fruitful and multiplied as God told them to be, and so now they're a whole nation. And Pharaoh is not super excited about this immigrant nation that's in his country, and so he enslaves them. And they continue to grow, and so he decides to kill generations of baby boys. But God saves one boy... Moses through a conspiracy of women that protect him, and he actually ends up growing up in the pharaohs, the king's household. And then there's this whole thing that happens where he sees a slave driver whipping a slave, and so he kills him, and he goes onto the run into Mount Sinai, or into the Sinai Peninsula. So the Israelites are in slavery, and Moses is in exile, and that's just filling in the gap before we start today's story. So there's a big jump here. But we are when we start the story in Exodus chapter 3, we're going to use the first part of this chapter to get our bearings, to get our coordinates for the plan. So remember, there's four things to watch for. First of all, who is the story about? That's the people portion of it. Place is where is their home? Where are they meant to be? Third is presence. How can they meet with God? And fourth is purpose. What has God told them to do? I'm going to read you this passage, and I want you to... to find those coordinates in this part of the story. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the 
the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush did not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God said to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. All right, who is the story about? Moses. On one level, it's about the Israelites, because the Israelites are God's people, that he, he has designated them as his people. But now he's chosen one Israelite that he's going to work through in a special way. He's going to be their leader and his representative. And so Moses is going to play this special role, which we haven't really seen yet before in the story. Joseph kind of does this a bit, but Moses is the first time that God really says, this is my guy amongst my people. Okay? So it's about Moses and the Israelites. Where is their home? Where are they supposed to be? The promised land. Canaan, you see God talk about this when he, he calls it the land of the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Mosquitoites and the Pillowites. And, sorry, this is a terrible joke from a book, a Bible book that I had when I was a kid. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, the promised land. He's told them they would, he would give them this land and that's where they're supposed to be. Right? The next question is, how can they meet with God? burning bush? Well, that's how Moses met with God, and that's what we've seen, right? So God was in Eden, and you could count on meeting God in Eden until humanity was exiled, and then after the flood, there's been no sense of God's presence in a special place on earth, right? We talked about how the Tower of Babel was human beings trying to coax God down by getting a cat out of a tree. Like, they built a ladder so they could get him to come down and, and live with them. So they, there hasn't been a place where you could go to meet God. Now, God has met his people on his own terms. He has shown up in specific places. And this seems to be, at first glance, another situation like that, where God just shows up in a random burning bush. Except, it's not random. Because where are they? What was the first description we got of the location that Moses is at? The mountain of God. It's the mountain of God. And you'll notice something else. We sometimes gloss over some of the phrasing in the Bible, and I literally realized this as I was reading it this time. God says, I have come down. Right? And that means something. Because he, said, he, that, he also says to Moses, hey, you are on holy ground. And then, just after the session that we've read, he's going to say, I want you to take the Israelites out of Egypt and bring them back here. In fact, if you remember, if you really know the story, you know that the first time Moses goes to 
Pharaoh. He doesn't say, let my people go. He says, give us a long weekend so we can go out of the desert and worship. And he asks for three days. And he's, he asks Pharaoh to let them go to the mountain. Because Mount Sinai is not just some random place where God showed up. Mount Sinai is the place where God came down. So this is where they can meet God. If at this point in the story, God is saying, this is where I am, and you can meet me here. In fact, I want you to go back and get the whole nation of Israel and bring them back here to meet me. Because this is God's presence on earth. What this tells us is that this huge thing has changed in the story of the Bible, which is that God's presence is back. And this, this special single location of God's presence is back. He's, he was in the desert. And he revealed it to Moses. And so now things are changing. It's kind of like when you read uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and winter starts melting. You know, like the snow starts melting, like winter is changing. Like, okay, things are changing because God is here in this special way. And because God is here, Moses has a job to do. Which is, his mission is to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And as we're going to see in the next two verses, it's to lead them out of Egypt and to the mountain. So Mount Sinai, in, in this passage it's called Horeb, but Horeb and Sinai are the same mountain. This is a very special location. And in fact, later on, you will have a couple of different people come back to meet God there. Uh, Elijah meets God there, and we talked about in the Galatians class about how it's pro- that's probably where Paul met with God. And he talks about going into Arabia. So, Mount Sinai is a big deal. So, Moses has now had an encounter on God's mountain with the presence of God in a miraculous talking, burning bush. Like, to me, the talking is actually the bigger deal than the burning. But um, it's, it's a big deal, right? And this is what we dream for, right? How often have I felt like if I ever had a miraculous experience with God, I would, I would be great from then on. Like, that would solve all my problems, all my doubts. Everything would be fine. I would be, yeah, just God show up, talk to me face to face, and I'm good. Some people will say, I would believe in God if he would just show up and talk to me, but if I can't see him, I won't believe him. The Bible tells us that's not actually how humans work. Because as we move into the story and we look at how Moses responds to this incredibly important experience with the presence of God, his response is, he said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I think this, this line actually starts with him looking behind him. Like, me? His first reaction as God tells him to do something is, Me? I can't. Why would you want me to do that? His very first reaction is he feels completely inadequate for the mission that God gave him. Like, whoa, wrong guy, God. Wrong guy. Why would you choose me? I'm a failure. I'm a nobody. Whatever his reason, he's going to give us some reason, but I'm the wrong person. So he feels completely inadequate. And the way he acts on this feeling of inadequacy in the presence of God is to argue with him. So we're going to look at his side of the conversation first. The next thing Moses says is, he says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is your name? Then what shall I tell them? He's basically saying, I know nothing about you. I didn't go to seminary. I didn't, you know, I haven't read my Bible because it hasn't really been written yet. So I, I don't know anything about you. Like, you're, you're somebody that we heard you talk to our ancestors way back, but 
what do I know about you? So I don't, I don't have anything to tell them. What am I supposed to say? And then, in chapter 4, verse 1, the next thing he says is, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? But even if I say the right things, why should they listen to me? They're not going to believe me. And then, in verse 10, he says, Pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. He says, look, if you're, if you're looking for a public speaker, I am not it. I am not good at this. And, and having a conversation with you is not making it any better. Like, I'm just, I'm not the guy. I'm not equipped for this. And finally, in verse 13, he says, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Which really tells us the excuses are subterfuge. The excuses aren't the real thing. The point is he doesn't want to go. When he runs out of excuses, he doesn't run out of no's. He just says no one more time. Because Moses' reaction to the living God speaking to him in person and giving him a mission is he tried to talk God out of sending him. Five times. There are five times that he speaks to try and get God not to send him. That number is important. Not for this week. You're actually going to have to remember it for next week. So log that away or just, you know, save your bulletin notes because I'm going to remind you of that next week. This five times thing is important. But this is Moses' reaction. So any of us who think that all my problems will be fixed if God would just show up to me face to face, the Bible does not bear that out. That's not how humans work. Now, the thing is, this is a conversation that goes back and forth. And so normally I tell you all the things that the people did, and then I tell you all the things God did in response, but there's a back and forth. So we're going to skip now. We're going to skip the last line about what Moses did, and we're going to go to what God did. Okay? So, be prepared for that. Now we're going to go back and look at the conversation again, and we're going to look at what God did in this conversation. So Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So God's response is very interesting. Moses says, who am I? And essentially God says, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who you're with. It doesn't, that's not the point that, that who you are, because I'm the one who's going to do it through you. So I'll be with you. Notice he doesn't even tell him who he is. He, he doesn't actually answer that question. He just says, I'll be with you. Which means the question of who am I is irrelevant. Because he's going to be with God. Right? And this is when Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Basically he's saying, okay, good, you're with me. Well, who are you? Like, if I tell them, hey, some God that talked to me out of a burning bush is with me, that's not going to impress anybody. Right? So who are you? Who is with me? And this is one of the most famous things that God says in the entire Old Testament. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, the phrase I am in Hebrew is Ekhyeh. If you were to say it, he is, it would be, sound more like Yahweh, which occurs many times in the Old Testament and is usually translated with the word Lord in all caps. That is God's personal name. Is he is. It's not actually, like he can call himself I am, but we call him he is. And so that's what you encounter throughout the Bible whenever it talks about the relationship between God and his people. Like, that's, that's the name for people who know God on a personal basis, is Yahweh. He is. Now, the thing about this phrase is that Hebrew, uh, you can't actually completely translate it into English because English words are too narrow. 
because the words for I am who I am mean more than I am who I am. They also mean I will be who I will be. And that's a really important part of this meaning because it basically says it's a continual meaning. It points into the future. And I think that's important for us because this connects what God is saying here with what God just said to Moses because God has already said who or what he will be. I will be with you. And so to say, I will be what I will be, or I am who I am, is to say a God is defined as the one who is, as opposed to all the ones who aren't, the gods who aren't, and the God who will be there. You want to know who he is? He is the one who will be where he said he will be and will do what he said he will do. I will be what I will be. I will prove myself to be exactly who I say I am. That's who I am. I am everything I say I am. I am as advertised. I show up. That's what this statement, one of the things that it means. You can mind this for a lot of meanings, but one of the things it means is, I will be where I say I will be. I will do what I say I will do. And where he said he would be is with Moses. So what God is emphasizing here is that he's promising to be with Moses on his mission. The important thing is not what Moses can do, it's who Moses is with. And when God says he will be with him, he will be with him. That is who God is. So Moses responds to this by saying, well, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it down on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it, quite reasonably. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned it back into a, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So God gives him this ability to take his staff and turn it into, um, actually, whatever that Hebrew word we translated as snake means. It probably does mean snake, but I find it interesting that Hebrew words usually mean a variety of things. It could also mean crocodile or sea monster. So it's entirely possible that he throws down his stick and it turns into an alligator. Or a crocodile. I, I like to picture it that way. It's probably a snake. A, a snake makes way more sense. But it's, it could have been a crocodile. I think that's awesome. So he gives him this ability to turn his stick into a snake on command. He also gives him two others. Uh, he can put his hand in his coat, bring it out, and it's covered in disease. Put it back in and bring it out and it's healed again. And he can turn water into blood. Those are the three abilities that God gives Moses. And the, the point is God is equipping Moses for exactly the thing that he asked for. Moses asked how am I going to prove that you're with me? And that's really all those things are good for. Moses is not going to defeat Pharaoh with those powers, right? One snake or even one crocodile is not going to win a war. Um, giving yourself a disease is not going to be helpful at all. And turning water into blood might be helpful, except that affects everybody. He's not giving him powers to win a battle. He is specifically equipping him to do what he's told him to do in this instance, which is speak on my behalf, show people that I've, I'm with you, right? So he's equipping him to do what he needs. And yet, after, even after Moses goes through all these abilities, amazing things that God gives him, he's still struggling. This is when he says, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since I've, you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The implication here seems to be, yeah, you can help me, you can give me the ability to turn 
a, a stick into an, into an alligator, but you can't give me the ability to speak clearly. It's a bit of a silly perspective to have, but he's just really not feeling up to this mission. And God responds by saying, who gave human beings their mouth? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. God says, look, I'm the one who made you. In fact, I've made every mouth that's ever been or ever will be. I know what you can do and what you can't. It's, you're never going to tell me something. Like, Moses is never going to say something to God and God's going to go, oh, you're right. I didn't think of that. Okay, how are we going to work around this one? He says, no, I know. I made that mouth and that tongue and that mind. I put all of it together. I know and I can use you. I can do this through you. And in spite of all this, Moses has run out of things to say, but he's still got doubt. And so he says, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. First time God is described as angry in the Bible. And he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you to speak and will teach you what to do. So Moses says, please, just, just don't send me. Don't ask me to do this. And God gets angry. But notice what God does in his anger. He doesn't smite anyone. He doesn't even punish anyone. He gets angry and he says, fine. Aaron's already on his way. I know he can help you, so I'll work through the two of you. You're unwilling to do it alone. I'll bring, I, Aaron's already on, my way, on his way because I knew this was going to happen. I'll do it with both of you. He's not, so the point is, if Aaron's already on his way, God already knew this was going to happen. God already has all the pieces in, in motion. And his anger is, is not this, I'm going to smite you. It's, man, you could have done this. I, 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 you, had to, I, you could have trusted me to do this the way I told you that I'll work with you anyway. You know, he, he, he doesn't give up on him. He just continues to work with his weakness. So the second thing that God does is he had a plan for all of Moses' needs and shortcomings. Nothing Moses said phased God. And in fact, God was already prepared before they, he ever lit the bush. He was already prepared to make this happen through Moses. Now we're going to look back at what Moses did. So we're going to go jump back in your outline. And at this point, Moses does what God tells him to do. But there's no passage where Moses says, like, wow, this is amazing. Thank you for convincing me. I feel awesome about this. Let's go. And, like, you feel like at the end of this conversation, he should be pumped. He should be excited. He should be confident. He should be ready to step right into a training montage. And everything is going to be great. Right? And we don't get that. In fact, all it, it doesn't even say he agreed to go. It says he went and told his father-in-law that he's leaving. And then he goes. And I think that's important because we, we might expect a big guy like Moses, like the most important person in the Old Testament, would at this moment just be stepping forward in confidence and certainty and strength and, and have no more issues. I mean, he's had a conversation face-to-face -face with God. He's set, right? And so that what happens is Moses goes and he talks to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, no. And actually, I'm going to punish, I'm going to make things harder for the Hebrews so they won't think about trying to leave anymore. So he makes them work harder. And, and so things actually get worse after the first conversation with Pharaoh. And how does Moses respond? With absolute trust and faith, right? He knows, oh, this is just one, just one thing, one bump. God's got it all under control. He proved it to me. No, actually, he kind of falls apart. 
Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought me brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak to you in your name, he has brought trouble on the people, and you have, res- you have not rescued your people at all. It hasn't really changed all that much. Right? And then, he goes and talks to the Israelites, and the Israelites are mad because he's just made their job worse. He said he's going to help them, and he's just made things worse. And so then when God speaks to Moses... He says, go tell the Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Since I will speak with faltering lips. He is still insecure. He still has his doubts. He still doesn't feel up to the task. So the question then is, why did he go? Because we think that what makes him go must be that he got over his doubts and his insecurities. That's not what happened. He went in spite of his doubts and his insecurities. That's the decision Moses made. Moses did not reach a point where it, was, it wasn't hard to decide to obey God. He didn't reach a point where his doubts had been dealt with and he had no insecurities and he was just certain everything would work out. He didn't reach a point of absolute faith. He obeyed in spite of the doubts that he had. If we, want, if we think we're called to be like Moses and we paint that picture of him being a person who stepped out without doubts, that's not Moses. And I don't think that's actually attainable. I don't know that I see that in the Bible. What happens is he, he goes out and he obeys God and he keeps obeying God even when he doesn't think it's going to work or he, he, doesn't, he isn't certain, he isn't confident. He just keeps, he obeys God. It's like the opposite of Abraham, right? Abraham believed. God said, hey, I'm going to do this miraculous thing. He's like, yeah, that's awesome. And then he didn't really live it out very well for most of his life. Abraham, or Moses is kind of the opposite, where he says, I can't do that. And then he still goes out and obeys God. In this midst of feeling completely inadequate. Now, that isn't to say that that's all he ever is. He does change, and he does grow. Because God uses the plagues of Egypt to break the power of Pharaoh, and finally Pharaoh lets them go. And so Moses leads them out of Egypt, and they head towards uh, Sinai, but they run up against the Red Sea, and all of a sudden Pharaoh changes his mind, and he leads an army to come and destroy them. And so as we get into chapter 14, they see Pharaoh coming to destroy the Israelites, and as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us up out of Egypt? And this is where Moses crumbles, right? The plan isn't going right. He's not winning against Pharaoh. And he's getting criticized by the Israelites. This is the stuff that makes him crumble. And what does he say back? Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. In this moment, Moses gets it. He feels it. And he not only obeys, but he obeys in confidence, because the more times he has encountered the faithfulness of God, the more confidence he has gotten, so that he, he doesn't, he isn't mired in doubts the same way. Now, this isn't to say that he has, at this point in the story, conquered his doubts and he never feels them again. That's not how human beings work, and that's not how his story goes. Moses has a lot of mistakes and a lot of doubt and a lot of anger ahead of him in his story. 
But what we see is he does grow in his understanding of God and in his trust in God as he sees God show up and prove that he will be who he says he will be. And so there is hope in the story of Moses that even though he starts out stepping out when he's in complete doubt and obeying God in complete doubt, he gets to a point where sometimes he doesn't doubt. Sometimes he's confident. Sometimes he's certain. Sometimes he knows exactly what God is going to do. In this moment, we see we get to see the last thing um, that God does in this part of the story. We summarize God's role in this relationship between him and Moses. Because Moses, uh, he puts out his staff and expects something to happen. Not that, his, he, not that he has the ability to do anything magical to staff, but he puts out his staff and he expects something to happen. You know what? Something happens. God shows up. Moses stretched his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The crossing of the Red Sea. An amazing miracle. And, and it's a point where Moses goes like this, and the waters part. There's a, there's a I guess, far side uh, where Moses is fishing with somebody, and his buddy is mad because Moses has parted the waters under his fishing lure, right? Which is really funny. But the truth is, Moses can't part waters whenever he wants. Moses knew that God was going to act, and he trusted God, and he stepped out, and God did it, right? So Moses didn't just have the ability to part waters. God showed up, and God saved them, and he parted the waters long enough for them to get through, and he closed them back up over the Egyptians so that the Egyptians couldn't follow them, and he freed them from slavery. And that is kind of the moment they became free because their slave drivers were gone. And he saved them. Then, as we follow through the story a bit more, we see the completion of the promise God made to Moses because it says in chapter 19, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. What did God say he was going to do once they came out of Egypt? That he would lead them to this mountain where they can meet with God. So God used Moses to bring the Israelites out of Egypt and into his presence. He used Moses when he doubted. He used Moses when he was confident. He used Moses in whatever state he was when he obeyed. And that's what sets Moses apart. If he obeyed. And so as we look to the Old Testament, we look to Scripture, we see examples of people interacting with the same God that we interact with, right? And so we learn from those relationships what our relationship with God can be like. And so that's why I want us to have an accurate picture of who Moses really is and what his strengths actually are, because too often we will look at people in the Bible as images in stained glass and see them as something we can never aspire to be, and then we give up because they're no use to us. If I can never be like this person, then what's the point in even paying attention? But that's not who Moses is. Moses is not a figure in stained glass. Moses is a lot more like you and I than we think. So as we learn from this story, there's just a couple of things that I want us to really focus in on. First part of the moral of this story for me is that God doesn't need you to feel confident or adequate 
He needs you to obey. Now, when I say need, I don't mean that God needs you because he can't get along without you. I mean this is what he needs you to do for you to play the role in his plan that he designed you for. He wants you in his plan. And so in order for you to play that role, what he needs from you is not that you feel confident and adequate all the time. What you need to do to play the role God has for you in his plan is to obey. I can tell you that this has been a big dynamic in my life because I have spent a lot of time feeling inadequate to be a pastor. And I ran away from being a pastor because of that. Because I looked at what I thought was expected of pastors and thought I could never be that or do that. And you know what? I cannot tell you that the days of feeling inadequate as a pastor are behind me. That's not what changed. At a certain point, God brought me around to finally being willing to say, I don't think I can do this, but maybe God can do it through me. Actually, I became a pastor by telling someone, hey, I don't know that I'm cut out for this, but I can help you get for a year to get through a building project. And God just kept showing up. I don't mean to hold myself up as some example. I'm just telling you my experience of this is that I ran a lot uh, from because of feelings of inadequacy. And it turns out that when God... The funny thing is I look back on that stage in my life and I realized God was using me the whole time in doing other things. I realized when I put together my resume for that job that I had been involved in ministry constantly because that's what God was leading me to do. I just didn't think I was up for it. You know, I, I didn't... I, I was focused too much on what I knew about my own abilities and not what God could do. And so often what happens is we will hear someone preaching or teaching about what we're called to be as as Christians, and our reaction will be, I can't do that. Who, me? And on the one hand, we might say, oh no, I can't do that, so they must not mean me. Like, that passage of Scripture is not about me. That's about, like, pastors and missionaries and super Christians. I'm just an everyday Christian. I'm not called to that. Or, we react to that and think, oh man, I'm not up for that. I can't do that. And we feel guilty because we know we're supposed to be able to do that. And we either feel guilty that we don't think we can't, we, we either feel guilty that we can't, or feel guilty that we don't have enough faith to think we can. Right? We are so good at getting twisted up in knots in our heads and finding ways to feel guilty about the way we, we emotionally react to things. But there's nowhere in the Bible that it says that you have to, you are expected to go through life with the exact right emotions for every situation that you face. Right? You're not called to be a stoic. Every person who follows God's will instead of their own encounters emotional turmoil, even Jesus. Right? And so what I've had to learn a lot in my life is, is to stop judging myself by my emotions more than my actions, in a way. Right? Like I, if I feel inadequate, but I obey, that is better than feeling adequate and not obeying. Right? And ultimately, it doesn't really matter whether I'm adequate or not. It matters whether God is adequate. And so as you hear, whether you're reading in your personal studies in Scripture, you're hearing from a sermon, whenever you hear God speak through someone or something to tell you this is what it means to be a Christian, you think, I can't do that. It's okay to feel that way because on one level, you're right. Moses couldn't do that on his own. And it's okay to feel that when we remember that God can do whatever he calls us to do. And that's what we put our trust in. That's why I think Moses could step out and act when he didn't feel confident about what's going to happen. He just had to trust 
It's like letting someone else drive. You just, you don't have control, so you can't actually make it happen. You can't make sure you get there. You just have to trust the other person. So you may be anxious, but the other person is in control, right? And that's what it means to follow God. You may still feel anxious, but you're saying, well, God's going to do it. One way or the other, God's going to do it. And that's why it's important for us to learn the other part of this lesson, the other part of this moral, which is that God has a plan for all of your needs and shortcomings. God knows you just as well as he knew Moses. God is prepared for your mission as, as, just as much as he was for Moses. Whatever your shortcomings are, God knows about them. But he knows your shortcomings and my shortcomings better than we do. There are, I have shortcomings I don't even know about. God knows. Right? And he's prepared for those. He's prepared for my needs. So when God gives us a mission... That's our cue that God is prepared to get us through that mission. God never says you're on your own. He equips us, and we need to trust that He is who He says He is, and He is the God who shows up. And that's how we're able to step out when we may not feel confident, when we may not know how we're going to get through, but we know the direction God is pointing us. That's how we be like Moses. Now, there's one missing piece for us. Right? There's one reason why I'm really jealous of Moses, and that is that I have never actually... Uh, I've climbed... I've climbed several mountains. I've climbed one mountain several times. And I have never encountered a burning bush at the top. I have never heard the voice of God. God has never spoken to me as an individual and given me an individual plan for my life. And I like to think that if he did, my life would be perfect. That's what I'm lacking, right? That mountaintop experience. So what are we supposed to do if we want to be like Moses, but we haven't had that mountaintop experience? If only we had some experience in the presence of God on a mountain where he told us exactly what we're supposed to be doing and exactly how he was going to be involved. If only we had that. Or maybe if I don't have it personally, if only the church had that. It occurred to me as I was studying this that we do. There is a, a moment that parallels what we've read today uh, in ways I didn't realize until I was studying today. That, that speaks for the whole church. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, after the resurrection, this happens. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I find that interesting. There's some who doubted. And Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. No, he doesn't. In fact, what he does to, for this group of people who are called to follow him... And, and some of them are doubting. He tells them this. He came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now let's look at this a little closer as we think about what happened with Moses. What did God tell Moses to do? He told him, so at that point, the, nation, the, the people of God are in one foreign nation, and God tells him, go to that nation and bring my people out of it. As Jesus meets with the disciples on the mountaintop, where are the people he wants? They're in all the nations. And so he says, go into all the nations and do what? Make, them dis make disciples of them by baptizing them. Okay? The interesting thing is, Paul talks about baptism, and one of the stories that he connects baptism with 
is the crossing of the Red Sea. He says that that's the moment the Israelites were baptized. They went into the water slaves, and they came out free. Right? That's how Paul read the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. So God sent Moses to the nation to teach, to, to bring the Israelites and baptize them out of slavery. And then he has them bring them to the mountain, and we, this will be next week and the week after, where at the mountain, he teaches them to obey the commands of God, right? So as we look at what Jesus tells the disciples to do, it's essentially the same mission. Go into all the nations and free the slaves. Bring the freedom of the gospel. Baptize them out of slavery to sin and into freedom. And teach them to obey me. Teach them to live the life that I have called you to. We, as the church, have the same mission as Moses. And the same promise. What did God promise Moses? I will be with you. And how does Jesus close? And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus has given us the same mission and the same promise. Now the particulars will look different for each of us because we've each been put in a different place and we each have different uh, gifts and we have different opportunities, but the mission is the same. If you're wondering, the mission is that where we are, where God sends us, we make disciples. We baptize people. We bring them out of slavery to sin and into the freedom of Christ. And we do it the same way Moses did, by participating in what God is doing. By bringing them Jesus. By showing them Jesus. And as we bring, as we bring them out of slavery, we bring them into the church and we learn together what it means to follow Jesus. And we do all of this because Jesus is with us. Not because we are adequate, not because we are always confident, not because we have the power, but because of who is with us. Jesus Christ. Amen? So as we close, I'm going to invite you to consider taking the next step. The most important next step you could be considering right now is to come out of slavery. You are a person who has not given your life to Christ. If you are still in bondage to sin, today is the best day for freedom. And so we encourage you to make that decision. If you're here to come forward during the final song to talk to one of the pastors, if you're online, we'd encourage you to uh, contact the church or get in touch with a, a Christian that you love or that you know who will be able to walk you through this. But if God is pulling on your heart, today is the best day to answer. If you want to get connected with our congregation and our church, then I would encourage you to check the box on your Connect card for our Connect class, which happens on the first Sunday of each month. And it's after church. It's from 1230 to 2. We have uh, sandwiches, and we talk about who the church is, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. And you can check the box if you're interested in that, and we'll get in touch with you. You can also join a small group. This is how we grow together and learn what it means to follow the commands of Jesus and to be the people He's called us to be. This is a team sport. We are the people of God. And so if you'd like to join a small group, check that box. We are also each called to serve. 
Like God had a mission for Moses, He has a mission for each of us. And if you're looking for opportunities to serve the church, our church has plenty of those. You can check that box and we'll work with you on, on the best place to plug you in. So I'd encourage you to consider what is the next step for you and wherever you are at, what is God calling you to do as we stand and sing our final song?